Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. All right, this morning, if you would, turn to the book of Judges. Our, we're working through a series titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. We know that is spelt wrong, and it's spelt wrong on purpose. Uh, in the same way a dad of, uh, of children can tell you that your kids like to argue with you about everything. It doesn't matter what it is, but they are convinced they're right, even if they're blatantly wrong, right? And what we see in this book is the same thing. It's, it's humanity arguing with their creator, saying, thanks for your advice, thanks for your tips. I know you created all of this but we're just going to kind of do things our own way and take our own advice and go from here. And so that's, that's the premise of the book. And then we see the moral fallout of what happens whenever creation decides to say thanks, but I'll, I'll do things my own way. And so that's why it's titled this. What I'm going to do this morning is we're going to be, and this is a little bit of, 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 of a mistake, we're not going to cover chapter four and chapter five. We're actually going to cover chapter four today. And then the song of Deborah is going to be covered next week, which I think flows pretty well for Mother's Day. And so just as a shameless plug, come back, Mother's Day, sassy cupcakes. We're saying goodbye to the Rexiuses. So um, be here next week, and we will explain all that. Again, next week's Mother's Day. We hope you guys will join us there. But we're going to dive into Chapter 5 next week. I say this for this reason, too. Read ahead, because it really helps to get a grasp and an understanding when we're covering such large chunks of narrative. So with that... Here is the main point I want you to remember and walk away with today. Got it? Main point. One word. Super easy. Remember. Okay? If you've watched The Lion King, at the end of The Lion King, he has this friend named Rafiki. Is that right? Rafiki? Yeah. 
he's the baboon, and, and, and he's calling Simba to remember something. And then um, Simba talks to his dad who has died, and, and his dad's like, you forgot. And he's like, no, I haven't. Yeah. And he's like, yes, you have. He's like, you need to remember, and you need to remember truths. It can be as simple as this, as oftentimes it, uh, it's easy for us to get, forget, and we need to remember. We need to remember the truths of who God is, the truths of what he's done, the truths of who we are, and the truths of what we do. So as simple as that, we need to remember. We're going to look at various things that we need to remember throughout the narrative today. But just to give you guys a lay of the land, I'm going to summarize the story, okay? So I'm going to summarize it before we jump in and, and, and then work through it, okay? Last thing, if you have kids in here today, I just want you to know there's graphic content, okay? So this, this would be your last chance as I kind of linger on here for the, the next minute, uh, just to say that I will do my best in, in, in my wording in light of the children that are in the room, but it's, it's a big graphic today. And the book of Judges, just as a heads up, I think Jason Patterson, our director of family ministries, did a great job explaining that. It's a graphic book. We're not going to shy away from that, so we're going to tell the story as it is, but it's pretty graphic. So just so you know, parents with rooms and the kids, that's what's coming. So with that, I'm going to summarize, we'll pray, and then dive in. So here, here, here's the story of Judges chapter 4. You have a judge named Deborah, and you have a uh, commander, in a sense, chief of an army named Barak, okay? What is happening is this, is that we see this cycle that happens over and over and over again throughout Judges with, with the nation of Israel, is they, they get this judge, which is a leader, and then they, they, they say, okay, we're going to start obeying the Lord again. The judge calls them to do that. And then the judge dies, and they fall right back into their same sin patterns that they had before. That's what happens with Israel. They fall in the same sin pattern. So God raises up this incredible woman named Deborah, who then calls on this other guy named Barak to call on an army of 10,000 people, okay? So Deborah tells Barak, this is the word of the Lord. She's also a prophetess. And she says, Barak, this is what you're supposed to do. Go get 10,000 men, and it's time to go crush Jabin, who's the king of the Canaanites, and his people, and specifically his commander. So that's what Barak does. He goes, and he gathers 10,000 men. And then she throws in a little caveat. She says this, just know there's going to be no glory in this for you. In fact, another woman is going to get the glory. So later on, as they go to war, the entire Canaan army decides to run and flee because God brings a storm. In that, the commander, Sisera, he goes and he finds shelter in another woman's tent, this sweet little hospitable woman named Jael, who invites him in for some milk and then drives a spike through his temple. And then the story kind of ends with Israel again back on top with their external threat and their oppressors wiped out, okay? That's the story today. The reason I say this is it's too long to read it and then go through and then chunk by chunk walk through it. So that's the story today. Pretty crazy, pretty graphic story, but that's where we're at today. And the main point is this, for us to remember, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for just bizarre stories like today. God, that reminds us that you work in the midst of bizarre and horrific and horrible circumstances in life. God, you live and work and operate in the midst of just craziness. Your, you, everything is in control of your hands, God. There's no one in this room, the details of our life, anything large or anything small that has bypassed your good rule. God, we thank you for that. 
Teach us about your grace this morning. Teach us about the gospel. Through your spirit, transform our hearts and our lives. God, for those listening online, for those just, just in a spot of hurt and pain this morning, we're asking that you minister. God, we know that you've given the one thing that can save and transform our hearts and our souls. That's your son and the work that your son has accomplished. We're praying that that would be loud and clear this morning. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you encourage. Meet with us this morning and encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing we're going to do is go back to chapter 3 because we don't want to bypass this guy named Shamgar, okay? So the first thing that we're going to do is remember this, is remember what we deserve. This is even a question that you guys can start to ask yourself, what do I deserve? And it's a question that's really good to ask. It's a good question to talk about in community because it'll shape your perspective on life. Please listen to this. This question and the follow-up to it can shape your marriage, can shape your relationships, can change your singleness so, so much. This question, what do I deserve? What do I deserve? Now, as, as we look at 31, we see there's one verse given to this guy named Shamgar, but look what he did. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. Like, that's a big deal. You, you basically take a bow staff and kill 600 guys, and you got one verse. I read someone online who said, Shamgar should have had a whole book. He deserved to have a whole book written about him. The problem with that is, is no one deserves anything from God. Like, like, like to say God owes me this, or I should have had a whole chapter about me, or I should have had pages written about me, is just inconsistent. Now, please hear me out. I know this is going to unsettle some of you guys, okay? If someone said, Rick, what do you deserve? If you guys asked me that, I would say, I deserve wrath, hell, eternal separation from God, no good gift, nothing like that. According to God's standard, I would not deserve or lay claim to anything that I can do to say, God, you owe me this. And again, I know that's hard. Just so you know, I don't enter counseling sessions like that every time. I'm like, what do you deserve, wrath, hell? And that's, like, that's not how I enter in. I'm not saying that's the most helpful thing. But, but realistically, if we read the word of God and say, what do we deserve? And start to answer that question. We don't get to lay claim to say, I deserve this. The, a word that bothers me is fair. That's not fair. You know what's not fair? A perfectly innocent man dying on the cross for criminals and his enemies. That's the only unfair act that's ever happened in all of humanity, Jesus Christ. But we hear this language so often. It's on, I've said it before, it's on donut boxes, it's on euphoria chocolate. We hear people say, that's not fair, it's not fair. You deserve this, you deserve this. And so we start to get in our heads like, there's something that I deserve. I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this. We read an incredible story, we go, what do we deserve? Shamgar did something incredible. But you know this that our entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all grace. Like, we, we don't even need creation. Like, God was not bored with the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit going, I don't know what to do. It's just, we're bored. We should create humans because we need them. God created life so that we could, we, we, we could experience him in a relationship with him. It's not because there was a void in God he needed to fill. It's because he wanted to be with us. And then anything past Genesis chapter 3, the fact we have Genesis chapter 4 and the rest of the Bible, all grace. 
Because as soon as someone sins against God, treason against God, God said, the penalty of that is death. But the fact that anyone's name is in the Bible at all, and especially past Genesis 3, is all an act of grace. Grace is getting something you do not deserve. Like you can't lay claim to anything you've done and say, God, give me this. It's, it, it's an unearned gift. So any name in the Bible actually is, is an unearned gift that doesn't deserve to be there. So my, my other question is this. If your name is written in no other book besides God's book of eternal life, the Lamb's book of life, is that good enough for you? If you are never remembered, if you are forgotten, is it good enough for you to know that God knows you and he's written your name in the book where your name can never be erased from? Is that good enough? I think a good question is this, is that a role that, 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 that doesn't get a lot of glory coming up next week is moms and Mother's Day, right? Like you don't hear a ton of praises, like, like maybe you would, it, it, you would feel something if your little baby looked up and was like, thanks for taking care of me. It would be creepy, but maybe it would be nice to hear that, but you don't get to hear that. Like you pour out and you pour out and you pour out. And as your kids get older, here's, here's the other truth. It, it doesn't change much. You pour out, you pour out, you pour out. It's a very tough and difficult job that is a lot of outpouring with not a lot of gratitude on the other end of that. It's a difficult job that oftentimes doesn't get much glory, doesn't get much praise. You don't experience a lot of gratitude. But here is the other reality to that, is that as a child of God, you have all the accolades, all the amens, and all the praises coming at you always from him with full delight. Is that enough? As, as, as we move on to the story now, we first want to remember what we deserve as we think about Shamgar and, and be slow to say, that's not fair, or I deserve this. But then we're going to look at Deborah and Barak. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What we're going to remember here is what sin cannot do. So second, second thing, remember what sin cannot do. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel, cruelly for 20 years. You know what we see? We talked about this last week. We talked about what sin can do. Sin can oppress you. Sin can enslave you. Sin can suck joy from your life. This week, we need to remember what sin cannot do. What we're going to see over and over again, when this commander, Sisera, and when the uh, king of the Canaanites, Jabin, rule over the people, what they're doing is uh, oppressing them. They're very cruel. They're a very cruel master. What sin cannot do, listen, is it cannot bring joy and peace to your life. What we get and what we'll get throughout Judges week in and week out is we'll see the people hand themselves back over to sin expecting sin to provide something for them that it cannot do. And what we actually get to see, which is so cool and so accurate, is when the Canaanites continue to come in and oppress the people of Israel, we're actually just seeing what sin does to us on the inside from the outside. So what we're getting to see is this is what it looks like to have a very oppressive master, which is what sin is on the inside. We're getting an external picture of what sin does on the inside. Sin cannot 
satisfied. Sin cannot bring you a full sense of joy in your life. It cannot do that. I've never met the person in a counseling session that's walked through an affair, that's walked into sin, that has done these things over and over again and said, that satisfied me. Over and over again, I met with, with, with uh, just tears and emptiness saying it wasn't worth it because it cannot do what it promises to do. It can only under-deliver. The other thing that we see is the people of Israel constantly think this. They think what they need is, is external relief. They think if God comes in and wipes away this cruel king and this cruel commander, then everything in life will be right. We believe the same thing. We see this in the midst of the pandemic. We see this in the midst of life. People think when there's a mess on the inside, when there's angst, when there's turmoil, when we're stirred up, we think the first thing we can do is if we can change our external circumstances, that'll somehow fix what's on the inside. Nothing externally can fix shame. You can adjust your body image as much as you want, but there's something on the inside that has to be dealt with. We feel guilt and we think we're going to do this or do this or change something on the outside. The biggest problem that Israel had, which is why we see them keep following our, uh, into the same pattern over and over and over again, is because they weren't dealing with what was on the inside. They were only trying to change external circumstances. And you can set up a lot of safeguards, but unless the inside is dealt with, you're going to be right back in the same spot. I've told some of you guys this, uh, but I, uh, I, don't know, I guess about a month ago, I took my oldest daughter uh, over to the coast. I was on my sabbatical, and I was like, let's, let's, let's get an Airbnb. I realize I'm not an Airbnb person now. Uh, but there, there, was, uh, there was a site, uh, or the site had this place called the Chicken Coop, okay? And that's what it was. And I should have, <laughs> I should have paid attention to that. <laughs> uh, but it was also $49, and I should have paid attention to that. So I went, I went budget. I went cheap. Uh, and we got there, and this person invites us into their house, and it is something else. And there's kids everywhere, and they take us out in the backyard. Now, it is something else. There's, like, just poop everywhere. There's animals everywhere. And I'm just like, what in the world is going on, okay? And then she takes us into the room, and I'm like, okay. And then I was like, where's the bathroom? It's inside. Okay, that's also a deal breaker for me. So I'm like, okay, here we are. The next morning, I, I want to leave. I, wanna, I wanted to leave then, but we wait till the next morning. I open the door till a chow. I don't know if you guys know what kind of dog a chow is, but it was just like snarling and growling. I'm like, oh my goodness. It looked like, if you've ever seen Pet Cemetery, it looked like something that it went through like a meat grinder and came out. It was just like, oh my, what is going on? And Joey goes, it looks like a teddy bear. And I'm like, I don't think so. Not a teddy bear I've ever seen. And so it's growling. I'm like, and so I'm like, get behind me. We're, we're sidestepping. I'm like, what is going on? We get out of there. Obviously, I'm here today. <laughs> and I realize something. I realize whenever you take shortcuts or try to take the cheap option, then oftentimes that is where you end up finding yourself in some position where you're going, what am I doing here? But oftentimes we have, have done something to place ourselves in that position. Not always. The other thing I realize is this is I went home and watched, not I didn't watch, I YouTube Pet Cemetery because I was like, man, I remember that. It was, came out the year I was born. Don't watch Pet Cemetery. It's dark. But I, I walked away feeling that dark kind of gross thing. And, and I'm like, oftentimes that's what sin does. It leaves us feeling how the Israelites felt here. That's, what, that's, that's all it can do. What it cannot do is fix what's inside and bring us joy. Okay? Next. Let us remember to trust and persevere. 
Verse 4. Now Deborah, we get to meet our new judge. She was a prophetess. Real quick, two other prophetesses in the Old Testament, Miriam and Huldah. This is not something new. There are two others, okay? The wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. Verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Avunom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people from Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, Hishan, with the chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Look here, verse 8. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Okay. Here is what we see that we need to remember to trust and persevere. 900 chariots wins over foot soldiers 10 times out of 10. The odds are completely stacked against Israel. This is not a good situation that they're going into. But if we rewind beyond that, we need to learn a little bit about who Deborah is. Deborah is wise. Deborah is fierce. Deborah is an administrator. But Deborah is also an adjudicator. You see, what was going on in Israel is they didn't have any civil justice system. And so she was actually up on a hill, and what the Israelites were doing is bringing their cases to her, and she was judging between them. She was adjudicating between these cases to try to bring peace and harmony amidst the Israelite people. That's what she was doing. Now, she, she knows this man named Barak. We're not told how, but she summons him and says, it's time to come down. Israel's been oppressed for 20 years. It's time to do something about it. In fact, God has given me a word. God has said for me to tell you, Barak, to go get 10,000 troops, and it's time to go to war. But just know this battle belongs to the Lord. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. At Jericho, march around the walls for six days, and on the seventh day, we're going to blow some trumpets. The battle belongs to the Lord. When Moses is pressed up against the Red Sea, he's, he's, he's struck with fear. He's like, what's going on? And, and the Lord says something to him. This fight's mine. You just need to sit and watch. So this is what we're told over and over and over again throughout Scripture. This is what we see here. Okay. Barak is not to be seen in a negative light. Commentators have seen Barak in a negative light. They think that he's some passive male that doesn't have the backbone to move forward. But in fact, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Jason Patterson pointed out this, that in Hebrews chapter 11, we're actually told that he was not someone who was being rebuked. In fact, he was actually wise for what he was doing because he was going to Deborah and saying, I recognize your strengths. I recognize your wisdom. I, I recognize the things you're able to see, the way you're able to command, the way you're able to structure things. And I'm not going to this war without you. So we don't want to moralize the story only, but in a lot of ways he's saying, don't go to war without someone by your side. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. I won't unpack all this for you, but I'll at least read it. It says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, 
Samson, Jephthah and David, Samuel and the, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained provinces, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The Bible commentates on the Bible and says, Barak was a man of faith. Not someone being rebuked because he was passive. He's actually wise. But regardless of that, whenever we see this, what we're meant to see is that she is actually a true prophetess. The way we know that someone is a true prophet, it says in Deuteronomy 18.22, if what they say by the Lord comes true, they have spoken of the Lord. If not, they're a false prophet. What we're meant to see is that God knows the future. He has prophets, he has prophetesses, and he says, this is what's going to come. This is not to be seen as a passive male not stepping up. It's actually meant to be seen as a prophet that, 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 that is being said and foretold that is going to come true. But regardless of that, would you do something if you knew there was no glory in it for you? You'd have to go back to what do I deserve or what's fair. Would you embark on something that God said there's going to be no glory for you? Much like Isaiah, much like Jeremiah, much like Shamgar, much like many people who have, have been forgotten. Are you willing to move forward in life if there is no glory in it for you? Or is it good enough that God gets the glory? That I want that. Honestly, I want the glory so much in my own life, and I want the praise, but I want to live in such a way where I'm like, I don't care who gets the glory, as long as God gets the glory. If, if I'm not remembered, I, that, that freaks me out. If I'm long forgotten, I want to be okay going, it doesn't matter as long as God gets the glory. The other thing is, look at where they're at. Barak's being summoned. He's being told, hey, thanks for coming on down, but just so you know, you're here because you need to go grab 10,000 men and go to war. You're not going to get any of the glory. The victory is going to be the Lord's. In fact, it's going to be a woman who prevails over this. Go ahead and go. Have you ever been in a position in your life where you're like, what am I doing here? What is going on? I feel that way in Eugene. I'm like, what am I doing in Eugene? It's such an odd place to live. Like, what am I doing here? What are you doing, God? Like, what is the purpose behind all this? It just seems so crazy. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel that way. You're like, you can't make sense of the circumstances in your life. You're listening online. You cannot make sense of the circumstances. You go, I don't know what I'm doing. You feel like your back's against the wall. You feel like you're in sinking sludge. You just feel like you're weighed down. God's words to us are the same as they were to Deborah and to Barak. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord and persevere. We are not good at stamina, patience, and perseverance. That's why you don't see ads for like, do you want to get fit? Sign up. Over the course of the next three years, through disciplined diets, through lots of working out, you too can transform your body. It's always like, do you want to get fit? Seven weeks, seven minute abs, seven something. It's just very short. It's very fast. We want immediate results. That's not going to sell because we don't like being patient. We actually grow in patience and we grow in perseverance when God places us in situations where we have no control. You ever try to grab vapor or smoke, take it and show it to someone and it's not there? The same thing. We think that we're placing our hands around things in life, grabbing a hold of them, and all of a sudden we realize we actually don't have the control we think we do. 
We're actually called to trust in the God who has full control of every situation and every circumstance in life. I have major control issues. And if you're like, I can't see that, it's because I'm trying to control the way that you see me too. But we can try to do every external thing to fix our situation. In fact, a sabbatical is, is, is a good thing. Taking a day of Sabbath, that's a command. But if you're not dealing with what's going on on the inside, you can change the, every situation. You can pull stuff off your plate. You can try these 10 steps. You can rest. You can do yoga, whatever it is. But if you're not dealing with the heart, you're not dealing with what's going on. The response that Scripture calls us to over and over and over again is to remember that God is in control, to remember that He's good, to trust Him, and know that wherever you're at right now, that it's not a mistake, that God is going to grow you and shape you in perseverance and in patience, and He does that through pain. And He does that through difficult circumstances, and He does that by realizing, helping us realize we are not in control. We need to remember to trust God and to persevere. Next, look at verse 11. We need to remember that he is sovereign. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites. The descendants of Hovab and the, the father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent as far away as the elk of Zahanim, which is near Kadesh. Okay, if you go back to Judges 1.16, which we won't now, you see something. The Kenites are going their own way in, in, the, um, in the Jewish land, okay? And they're actually going south. And then Heber and his wife are like, we're going to go north. So basically, southern Oregon, Ashland to Portland. They're like, you guys are going here, we're going here. It doesn't say why. It just says this is what they're doing. They're going in a different direction. I have a theory. Heber's wife, Jael, drives a spike through another man's temple, and so that could be some indication. But for whatever reason, they're going different ways. Here's why it's important. If you're going to trust God, if you're going to remember that you're called to trust God and that you're called to persevere, which is really difficult, you need to know that God is sovereign, which is mean he's in control over every big thing in life, but also every small, intricate detail in your life God has not, not removed from. There is not a rogue molecule, as R.C. Sproul says, that's outside of God's control. Everything in your life is under the hand control and goodness of a sovereign God. They moved here north, which we're going to see in a minute. Where does God send Sisera, this evil commander, sends him north, right to this tent. The very U-Haul that they packed up, the place they moved was all in and under the hand of God, placing them where he wanted them for his purposes. Everything that we do in life falls under the perfect hand of God, which can bring us some rest and trust and peace, knowing that God is sovereign. Next, we need to remember justice in the good news. Look here, starting in verse 12. When Sisera, this is the evil commander, was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tavor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth Haguin to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And highlight that. So Barak went down from Mount Tavor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. 
And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hishereth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. 17. We're going for it here. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Ezer, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, look what she says. Or she says, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. <laughs> so he turned aside into her tent and she covered him with a rug. How sweet. And verse 19, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skim of milk and gave him drink and she tucked him in. She, she covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. Sweet little story. So he died. 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to him. And said to him, come out, and I will show you the man whom you were seeking. So he went out into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Okay, remember justice and the good news. Okay, this is a lot here. What happened? Deborah says, it's time, go. And he's like, we're going. So they go out to war. We know from chapter 5, which we'll get in next week in Deborah's song, what happened? God brought a thunderstorm. God brought heavy rains. And where do you not want to be when you have 900 chariots made of iron? You don't want to be inside of a storm. And so for multiple purposes, uh, the lightning and also their, 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 uh, their chariots got stuck. And so this is why they're fleeing. They're on foot now and they're running. So they have 900 chariots that are completely useless. And now they're running away. And this guy, Sisera, the commander, he runs to, a, uh, it appears to be a safe place to go because of some relationship that was established. He runs there and she's like, yeah, come on in. And then she gets him a nice rug, which is like a blanket, and then takes it up a notch. She's like, can I get some water? And she's like, let me do you one better. Let me offer you more of a fine beverage. And he's like, oh, so that, that lowers his guard. And then he's satisfied, so he falls asleep. She tucks him in very sweetly, drives a stake through his temple, and then calls out to Barak, to, to the commander, and says, hey, come on in here. The guy you're looking for, he's, he's, he's right here. That's what happens, okay? What do we do with this? We remember justice. That God is a God of justice. We want justice. I've heard that it's 50 to 60% of men never face trial for the sexual abuse they've committed. But here's, here's the truth. Nothing passes by the eyes of God and out of the courtroom of God. Either they will face judgment for what they've done in the same way that Sisera faced judgment for what he did, or they will look to the same place that Christians look to the cross and say, that's how serious our God takes justice. God takes justice so serious that he was willing to put his son in the place to bear our punishment for our sins so we wouldn't have to bear it ourselves. The cross is where we look to see the fulfillment of justice, and we shouldn't minimize God. That's what oftentimes it's done. It's like, how do we raise that man and say, this is what man deserves, and then diminish God's holiness, and then make Jesus, the, uh, the cross and grace, really small. Instead, we should see how holy God is, how great the chasm is that exists between God and man, because we are so unholy, 
and go, there's no way to build a bridge between this outside of grace and outside of Jesus Christ. Every one of us is a violator to God's commands. We could go through the Ten Commandments and just do the 50% thing where we go through 50% of them and see that we don't even pass the 50% mark. So we go, who pays our justice? Same thing. Either we pay it by trying harder, that's religion, or we trust that Jesus Christ paid for it in our place on the cross. This is a wild and crazy story. There's a lot of irony in it because what we see is, in, is someone to step in to rescue and deliver who typically wouldn't rescue and deliver. Like we typically don't see the women prevailing and then society looking at that, but this was a cool thing for Israel to be like, yeah, that's when Deborah and Barak and Jael whooped up on them, right? And there's a lot of struggle with this because there's people that say in the Pacific Northwest, like, what's up with this? I have a struggle with this. Well, First, I don't have a problem with the story because I see God as a warrior. I see God as a God who fights for his people. We see this in the Old Testament, but look at Revelation when Jesus comes back. He's coming back as a warrior. Yes, he's a lamb in the middle, but he's also a warrior. I also remember when I started following Jesus, I was like meeting people and pastors. I was like, I don't think I was exposed to this side. And I would have been drawn to that. Instead, I thought all pastors wore sweater vests and had soft handshakes. I was like, I don't want that. And then I read this. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this is a story in our Bible. The other thing is this, from a very practical standpoint, if you have a struggle with this because you're like, isn't this a violation of the Ten Commandments? Isn't this murder? Let, let me say this. Christian, this is good for you to hear because these are cases that are brought forward. This is not a case of murder. Israel did not have a civil justice system, which is why they were going to Deborah to be an adjudicator for them. In fact, if Israel had a civil justice system, do you know the majority of these Canaanite men would have been put to death because they were actually, which you can see in chapter 5, they were actually raping women. We see later in Judges that they were actually, uh, multiple men were raping one woman. So much so that later in Judges we see leads to a woman's death. If there was a civil justice system in place, many of them would have already been put to death. So we need to understand this. This is ex a just execution not murder. In the same way, when you understand that someone gets lethal injection for something that they've done, we don't look at the person pushing the fluid through the IV and saying, murderer. They're simply the ones executing the judgment, going through with the judgment. Same way we see any type of, of, of justice being paid, we say, that's a just judgment. Now, if you're an atheist and you go, I have a problem with this, I don't think this is good. I don't think God should allow this. I just want to just, just appeal to you real quick. I, don't, I think you're going to have to wrestle with that in the same way C.S. Lewis did, in the same way Gerald Tolkien did, because as soon as you say this isn't good, or I don't think this is just, you're appealing to a worldview of what is good and what is just. And I'm just going to ask you, where are you getting that from? Because the Christian gets it from saying God sets the standard of what is good and what is just. So I would, I would just ask you, where are you getting that from? And so I don't have a problem with God bringing judgment on a person who should have been killed for what he was allowing women to do. If we saw this in a movie, let's be honest, I would be like, break his kneecaps. I would want something big to happen. Like, take this guy down, like for what he's allowing. What, what this story ultimately points to is this. It's not a moral lesson. That's what you need to hear. It's not a moral lesson. Deborah went up on a hill. Hear me. Deborah went up on a hill to adjudicate between civil things going on inside of Israel to bring peace amongst people. 
Thousands of years later, another man would go up on a hill, an unlikely hero, and what was he doing there? He was up on a hill with his arms spread wide, bringing peace amongst people and humanity. He was bringing peace ultimately between us and God. So yes, Deborah went up on a hill to bring humanity together, but Jesus Christ went up on a hill to bring us together with God and with one another. In the same way, Jael took a tent, a stake, and a hammer and drove it through Sisera. Later, thousands of years later, there would be a man who would position himself to have stakes driven through his hands and his feet. Why? Because he would deliver the justice blow that we should have been delivered ourselves. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ does everything in the most crazy ways as a criminal on the cross to bring us together with God and with one another. You need to hear this. It's a gospel of grace. I'm not standing up here today because I have my life together. I'm standing up here by one reason alone, grace. It's a sheer gift. There's nothing I can do to earn it. My dad used to have this saying where he would say, so-and-so or that is lower than whale poop, and that's at the bottom of the ocean. I would say, that's everyone who understands grace. You understand that you were lifeless, and God stepped in and said, I want you to be in my family. The moment you add any bit of your work to the gospel, it's a try-harder gospel, not a trust gospel. It's a try-harder gospel. Any, if you want to tick Paul off, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, righteously tick him off, add a single dot, iota, ounce, drip of sweat, anything to the work that Christ has done, and you will see him come undone. Why? Because it's not the gospel anymore. As soon as you can do something at all that you can take any credit for to look to God and say, look what I've done, it's not the gospel. You've abandoned the gospel. Day in and day out, if you think that there is something you are doing, a dot, an iota, a drip of sweat, anything like that that is meriting you God's love and acceptance and approval, you've abandoned grace in the gospel. There is nothing you can do in your day-to-day to make God love you more or less. Grace is not grace if you can add something to it. God's love is not his love if you think that you are earning it or adding something to it. It's free. It's free. That brings joy and peace on the inside when we know we're made right with our Creator. It brings joy and peace to me when I know and understand that's what grace is. That's what the gospel is. In the same way, I told the story about our Airbnb trip. I left my, my, my child's, my daughter's stuffy there. Her, uh, his uh, name is Barry, right? I won this thing at Papa's. And one of those cranes you put $30 in and then get a dollar stuffy. So I won it. There's some pride there, but also... My daughter cannot sleep without it. She called that night because I was by myself the next night, and she was stressed, crying. And I'm like, I don't want to go back in that yard. But I was like, I'm going to do it. Why? Because I knew the turmoil that would be inside of my daughter without it. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to go through with it. I'm going to go get it. Brought it back. My daughter has a sense of peace. In an infinitely greater way, God knew that we would not be at ease until we were made right and reconciled back into a relationship with him that is only made possible by Jesus Christ. That's where our peace, that's where our joy, that's where it comes from. If you try harder, and that's what you adopt, you will rot from the inside out. But if you trust, you will live in and out of the righteousness that's been made yours in Christ. Grace is grace, and it's only grace if it's a free gift. If you said, 
well, I might get canceled because we live in a cancel culture. God will never cancel his children. Because if you think that there's something you do or some action is tied to God's love for you, then you've abandoned grace. Grace is not about what you do. It is about God's faithful commitment to you, not in light of what you do, but in light of what Christ has done for you. What do we do when grace takes hold of our life, when it transforms us from the inside out, when it, I mean, gets a hold of us and impacts the way we live? Let me give you four quick things, and we'll close. We see at the end of this that they subdued their enemy. What, what Christians do who understand grace is they now, in a positive light, surround people. And we love people. So in this negative sense, they subdue them. In a positive sense, we surround people, sharing with them the good news of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. We, we, you're going to hear this a lot here, missional living. Missional living is not going overseas on mission, per se. It's actually treating every day as though you're living on a mission to intentionally build relationships with those outside of the faith. Two, model grace. This is just me pulling off the gloves for a minute. COVID has made us turn inward. It, it just has. For marriages, you, you've been put inside of a pressure cooker, right? If you have kids, it's a pressure cooker. Your sanctification has just grown like 10 years in one year, right? For single, you've been removed from community. Here's what happens with that, is we abandon a bit of a grace model community and we start to say, what's this community doing for me? This is what I deserve, this, this isn't fair. If you're going to model the grace God gave to you, you enter into community and say, if community does nothing for me at all, I'm going to continue to pour out because that is what grace is and does. But we don't like that. We're like, oh, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this. My group's not doing this. Just to be clear, many of our groups and group leaders have children, are pregnant, have a lot going on. It's like the fact that they're there and showing up, that's a big deal. What we can do is model grace to our community and say, if I get nothing in return, no glory, nothing, I'm going to move toward people and love them. Three, I just kind of want the whole, and this is, I'm not getting what I want out of it to die, just to be honest. Third, you're where you need to be. God is sovereign. You're where you need to be. If you're in the GC, the group you're in, the move you're making, whatever's going on, you're where you need to be because God is sovereign. He's in control. Wherever you're at, go in that and make it the best possible experience you can. Build up the people that are there in and around your group, in and around your life. Last, persevere. This is the part that's difficult and I just want to end here. There are so many that are going through a difficult season in life and you're like, thank you for the grace and for the remembrance of who I am, but life is still very difficult. And I would say, yes, it is. What you need to remember is you have an identity that doesn't shift and change, though everything around you might be falling apart. Though you might go through different circumstances in life, God has said, I'm committed to you. No one can pluck you out of my hand. But he also says this, in the very midst of your circumstances, in the very midst of your situation, in the difficulty of life that is going on, everything that is happening is not outside of my control. Will you surrender your control to me? Trusting that he will work it for his glory and your good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Shape us, encourage Jesus' name.